And like you said, with the liquor store example, even if it is the liquor board, that's okay, right? It's okay to have like a state actor that needs to verify that you're over a certain age to buy liquor. We live in a society and those are the rules of the society. But not everyone needs to know your address and your age and all this other stuff that they can then use to like... This is what we call selective disclosure. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, your host, and you're listening to The Charlie Shrem Show, powered by Untold Stories, where twice a week together, we get to dive deep with some of Bitcoin and crypto's most influential leaders. Those are truly understand where our industry is right now. And those are actually like doing things about it, right? Like not not just sitting around and, and complaining, you know, that are actually going out there, building things, forming associations, self-governing, having a lot of fun along the way. What an amazing week it's been. Today on the podcast, we have an awesome guest, Ingo Rube. Thank you so much, Ingo, for coming on the Charlie Shrem Show today. Thanks for inviting me. Totally exciting for me. Why? Yeah, I heard a lot about you. I've seen a lot of your podcasts. I follow you on Twitter. So, uh, yeah, pretty amazing and pretty much an honor to be here. Thank you. We've been doing the show together for almost four years, and it's been one of the, the best things I feel like I've ever done. Getting involved in Bitcoin in like early part of my life, I always felt like I kind of fell into it or got lucky somehow that I knew that I got into a chat room where a bunch of people were talking about Bitcoin on IRC in 2011. And then we had the first Bitcoin exchange, but I always felt that that was like a natural, the way the world wanted me to do. But this show and some of the things I've been doing now, I felt have been my choice. So it's fun to have started some fun things together. And it's Friday. It's the end of the week. It's my last show of the week. It's your last appointment of the day. What do you got going on this weekend? Oh, on this weekend. So um, I must say I have the in-laws over for Christmas already. So it's probably some in-law stuff. <laughs> Actually, tonight I'm doing the same thing. My mother-in-law is having a Christmas bake party where we all, when I told people that, they thought that we were going to smoke weed like a Christmas bake. And I said, no, it's like we bake cookies together. <laughs> So no, we're just all going to be baking like cookies. So there's dozens and dozens of Christmas cookies and it's a lot of fun. And so we're going to be having a good time doing that. I'm really looking forward. It's like my favorite time of year. Cool. Yeah. So I'm excited to talk today. You are to give the listeners a little bit of background. You're the founder and CEO of, is it, is it Bot Labs? It's pronounced Bot Labs? That's true. The, the founder of Kilt, a, a really cool blockchain that I've thoroughly enjoyed learning a lot about learning about your history on Kusama and being one of like the largest blockchain communities to like migrate over to, to Polkadot. There's a lot of, there's a lot of history there. There's a, a lot of history in, in the space too, with like self-regulating. And we saw with the FTXs and the Celsius and the Voyagers, and I hate to bring it up again, but we have to learn from what we didn't do right in order for us to have even better projects in the future that have that are even better investments in order for that to happen we need to learn like what led us down the wrong way in the past and how we could prevent that and you know you being one of the founding members of the polka dot association and being like a self-regulatory body there really cool i want to talk to you a little bit of like why you guys went down that road starting that but you you are no stranger to like open source projects right you got one of the coolest things that you did was getting involved as a board member of the, the Drupal Association. 
And when, when we were doing the research for the show, it was really cool because I'm very familiar with, with, this, uh, with this content management system. And I, I'm pretty sure it powers like 10 or 20% of the top 10,000 websites worldwide. I mean, you're talking about CMS for, for almost like a, a huge market share of, of the internet, of the web two as we know it today. And now you're involved in like building out web three. So what a perfect guest to have on the show today. Thank you. Tell me exactly how you got started. Tell me what, what's exciting right now. Yeah, so uh, maybe two or three words for, for Drupal Association, because that's uh, that was actually also a quite interesting story. So I, I was in the position of working for a huge media company uh, here in Germany. So numbers like 15,000 employees or something like that. So it's a big one. And um, I was actually asked the CTO, I looked at the, um, I, I think we had about like 50 or 60 uh, online uh, publications there, and uh, I looked at it, and they were basically using tons of different CMSs, and that was a, a chaos, and also not very efficient, and also very costly. And I said, okay, we have to move to one thing, and uh, that was my choice was Drupal by the time, and uh, then I started. We started uh, to actually have development departments which were developing cool things for Drupal. And uh, then we said, okay, this is open source, so why shouldn't we contribute? And this was this is one of the rare occasions where actually a commercial company um, became, I think, number one or number two contributor to an open source project. And uh, so they found this very exciting, obviously, at the Drupal Association, and they asked me then if I want to actually. And sit on their board for a while because that was um, what that was the right move in their opinion, and I think it is the right move. So if you are if you're doing commercial things uh, and you're using open source software, then it should you should be obliged to actually also contribute back and do something good for the community. And this is what we understood, and this was what was very much appreciated. And then uh, over to Web three. Uh, so uh, also in my role as the as the CTO of a big company, it was also my duty to actually pick up trends and stuff, especially in technology. And I came around Ethereum in uh, 2015, actually at the South by Southwest, there was uh, people from the founding of, of Ethereum standing there on stage and explaining what they do. And I, I knew Bitcoin before, but Bitcoin was, yeah, yeah, this is money. And money is maybe not so exciting. But then I noticed with Ethereum, okay, we have smart contracts now, we can basically do everything because we can put software on the blockchain. And that excited me very much. So I went back to the group board of the big company and said, actually, we have to do something in blockchain now because this is going to change everything. And uh, then they asked me to explain. And then I explained. And then they said, okay, this is very far off of what we do. Just be printing words on basically dead trees normally. <laughs> what you're doing, what you want to do there is, is very far away from us. And we shouldn't even have this as a department because as a department in a big company, it would just be squeezed by, by things. Okay, why don't you set up a company and do something cool in blockchain and we get a share of it and uh, we give you some money to fund this thing in the beginning so that you don't have to run around and go for venture capital. And I said, yeah, actually, that's pretty fair. And I quit my job there and moved over and built this company. And then the question was, okay, now we have money and we have a team. What, what shall we actually do? And coming from industry, I maybe had a little bit of a different view on uh, on things, how they should happen. So I asked myself, okay, what would be probably the first and most important thing that can be solved by blockchain, which is needed by industry? And uh, so we looked 
around a little bit and came around things like advertising and stuff like that. And then we noticed, okay, we noticed every time that we looked at it, we said, okay, but actually this needs identity first. And identity isn't solved on blockchain. It's not solved in the internet at all. And then at the third occasion, we said, okay, apparently identity is what's going to be adopted first because it's needed for everything else. So let's dig into the identity stuff. And this is how we ended up in uh, building decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials and being part of a decentralized identity foundation and building actually those standards on blockchain. What does that mean, identity and, and solving identity on the blockchain? Yeah, so identity is a thing that is somehow around us and everyone has one or two of them. And <laughs> people actually think about what identity is. So identity is actually composed of two different things. The first thing is an identifier. Identifier is, for example, your face or your fingerprint or your signature. This is something which is very, very much inherent to you. It's not given to you by a blockchain or by a company or by a government or anything. It's yours, right? It's, it's made by you. It can only be used by you. Uh, so this is per se decentralized, which is great. This is what we have in the physical world. And then in the physical world, we start to attach verifiable credentials to this identifier, which means that you have a passport, that you have a driver's license, that you have a student card, that you have a key which opens your door, that you have a library card and stuff like that. So for that, you need trusted entities like the library or the government or a bank or, or whoever issue a verifiable credential to you which is normally a plastic card or something. And then you have this credential for yourself and you control it, right? You have it in your wallet. And when you want to use it, you make an identity transaction. And this is, for example, when you go to a, a booze shop and want to buy a bottle of whiskey, you have to show something which shows that you're over 18. You can choose which credential you want to show. And then you show the credential, maybe your ID card and uh, your ID card then looked at by the guy in the shop and he first looks at the picture and compares that with your face and say, okay, that can be the same person. So if I try to use your ID card, that will probably not work because we have different faces, right? So you can even leave your ID card somewhere. It's not uh, very important. You can just get a new one. The old one can't be used by anyone else. So this is very cool, actually. So it's very secure. And then uh, the person looks at, okay, who's, who issued that? And they say, okay, this was this date. Okay, I trust the state. I heard about that. So trusted entity is okay for me. And then looks at some security things, like is it real or did you make it yourself? And then the person looks at the actual content, which is your date of birth. And if you're over 18, you can calculate that. Then he can give you a bottle of whiskey. The cool thing about that is that the issuer, like the government, did not find out was, was, uh, if you bought a bottle of whiskey because they were not involved in the transaction. So it was just you and the guy in the whiskey shop. And this produces a lot of privacy, actually. And it's also totally scalable, which is fantastic. And this concept we had in the physical world for like 500 years now, but we don't have it in the digital world. In the digital world, it's completely different. There is yeah. Facebook who actually make your identity and they hold your identifier and they also hold your credentials. And you don't even access them. Right? So this is not very privacy preserving. This is very centralized. This is very dangerous. And so this was one of the big flaws of the Web 2, and we have to change that in the Web 3. Okay, so let's, going back to the real-world example with the liquor store, in your example, who would be issuing the credential? In the liquor store, example, yeah. anyone who's trusted by the verifier, which is the guy in the liquor store. Or is the verifier the alcohol board of the country or the state or whatever? 
No, the verifier is the guy in the booth shop. So he verifies if your credential is okay. And then it can be issued, for example, by your university because it's your student card. It can be issued by the government because it's your ID card. It can be issued by the... Okay, so essentially, like, you're right. And one of the biggest privacy decreasing acts that we all do every single day is when we have to show somewhere on our ID. Because in those contextual situations, the liquor store or entrance to a nightclub or some of these things, they just want to check if you're over the age of 18 or 21. In some other contexts, you just need to have on record who the person was that entered that stadium, for example, or just for, for security reasons, for a football match or something like that. However, the privacy decreasing act there is that on your ID card is almost every piece of information that a person could use to go out and open a bank account or a credit card in your name. You're giving away, there's so, like, but they really, they just need to verify your, your, your picture and that you're over 18. And like you said, with the liquor store example, even if it is the liquor board, that's okay, right? It's okay to have like a state actor that needs to verify that you're over a certain age to buy liquor. We live in a society and those are the rules of the society. But not everyone needs to know your address and your age and all this other stuff that they can then use to like... This is what we call selective disclosure. In the passport or ID card world, you can basically put your finger on top of the information that you don't want the guy to read, right? So necessary for this guy is actually two things or three things. First, your picture that it matches, right? So that the identifier matches the credential. And the second thing is that the date of birth is readable. And the third thing is maybe that this thing is not fake, right? So if, if you can control that, then it's fine. So in the digital world, you're totally right. This is what also part of Kilt. Actually, so we have a selective disclosure. So you have a credential which says 10 things about you. And you can select for each transaction that you make, which parts of the credentials you actually want to share. In the digital world, you go on a website, you create an account, you're buying clothes, you're creating an account at a crypto exchange, you are opening up a securities you know, account to, to trade stocks. You're almost anything you're doing, even if you're registering to create, to use a free QR code reader, you know, you need to input your name, your email address. And then if you're up to the point where more information you have to, so all these different entities are holding on to your data, holding on to your information. There's constant hacks, constant attacks. My data is, is on, is for sale on the dark web right now. So is yours. So are half the listeners of this show. Half of the, all their data is probably being sold somewhere right now. That's just the way it is. You're telling me that in the future, there's a chance that I can actually like go to sleep at night, really believing that my data is in control and I know who's looking at it when they're looking at it? Well, it, it's going to be as good as it was in the physical world. So if you share data with someone and they misuse the data, then we cannot do anything about that. So if you share all your information with uh, company X and then company X decides to misuse that and use it on the dark web or wherever, then this is not, we cannot take that back. But what we can give you is the control over your data so that you can actively decide which parts of information you actually want to share with who. So this is possible. It's not possible. So as soon as you shared it, then you have to trust the guys you shared it with that they don't misuse it. There are so many different applications for this too. Tell me about the move from Kusama over to Polkadot. Actually, it wasn't that exciting. The, the most exciting thing actually was that uh, we were the first who did this. 
and uh, I think it's uh, yeah, it should be some something like a role model maybe for other chains as well. Because what we have also seen uh, with some of the changes uh, chains that they started on Kusama, and then they made an additional chain on Polkadot, which produced a new token, right? And of course, then it's two different chains that you have to maintain. It's very very complicated for small teams to maintain actually two chains. And this leads to the thing that some of those uh, companies really can't maintain both. And then they neglect, of course, the Kusama one. Yeah. Which is not nice for the people who actually first invested in this one. And uh, this is why we said from the beginning, uh, there will be only one killed network. Either it's going to be on Kusama. Of course, it's on, being on Kusama first because Kusama was there first. But if we move to Polkadot, then we will move the whole network over from the one chain to the other chain. And this is something that no one ever tried before. They started a new chain, right, with new functionality, with a new with new code. And uh, the interesting part about it was that we were the first, and I think we are the only ones until now, who actually made this uh, experiment to take the Kusama chain to have it stopped by Community World, so that we have a finite last block, and then continue with the next block on the different infrastructure from Polkadot. So that was pretty exciting, and uh, but it worked. <laughs> yeah, how does that work? So I, as I understand, like Polkadot parachains, you have Polkadot, which essentially acts as like a hardened chain that just deals with finality, or is it just, I actually have the information up here because I'm so interested to learn. So Polkadot is the layer, is the layer zero, right? And, and essentially you get the shared security offered by the, the staking network of all people who hold Polkadot. But then on top of that, you can operate your own different like layers on top of that smart contract execution. And that's, that's it's very cool that I can speak about that because many, many people just mix this up and ask, where's the smart contract? So, <laughs> um, so with, with Ethereum, if you build on Ethereum, you're building a smart contract, right? So you're building a small piece of software and this small piece of software is then run on the blockchain, on the EVM. Of, of Ethereum, so you have the security of Ethereum basically executing your software, which is totally nice. This is totally nice, especially for small business cases. But then, if you need a little bit more flexibility, which we needed, for example, for for the identity chain, uh, then it would be cool if you can build your own blockchain. So building your own blockchain is totally different, right? So it's it's not so in in the Ethereum model, you as the smart contract, you always compete for block time of the Ethereum world, right? So um, so if there's a lot of people running smart contracts, then uh, the time gets scarce and then you have to pay more gas and stuff like that. All that happened. The idea of Polkadot is that basically everyone runs their own chain. So it's a little bit more complicated, of course, to build your own chain. It's not like building a smart contract. So it's really building a blockchain on the same level as Ethereum or, or, or Bitcoin is, right? And then you say, at the beginning, of course, we are not as big as Bitcoin or Ethereum. So we don't have enough security from the validators in our chain. So we have to borrow security somewhere else. And this is what Polkadot is good for. They basically lend us security. But what do we do? We produce blocks and every single block is sent to Polkadot and they validate the block again and see if it is correct. And if it's correct, it's getting a stamp on and it's then sent back to our chain. And then our chain is, a, is in a finite state and then the next block comes. So they are basically, yeah, they are our... KPMG, if you want to say it like that. So, so we sent like not... real time auditing of the chain on a more secure chain. Can you say again? It's like real time auditing. 
It's auditing, right? It's a totally auditing what they do. There's there's two features in Polkadot. One's auditing and one's communication. So there's also this thing where you can send between the different chains and that you can send messages over the Polkadot chain uh, to the other so that the message is basically also audited and secured in a way that the other chain can be absolutely sure that this is sent by this chain. These two features are there, and this is Polkadot. This is the idea. And it gives you a lot of flexibility, of course, for the people who build the chains, because you can make your own token economy and stuff like that. You can, uh, you have much more flexibility. You can have your own validator program and, and so on and so on. And you can build much more complex things than you can actually do on a smart contract. And this is the huge difference between all the smart contract chains and the Polkadot chains. Because if I want to have a chain which allows smart contracts, I can just Build an Ethereum clone and secure it with Polkadot, right? So then I have literally smart- just described to people like the difference between like layer zeros, layer ones, and different type of chains. That's very that's a very good explanation. And so because because identity is the only part of the equation that you need finality, and you said that identity is the transaction, right? Every time there's some sort of transaction, like even entering. Entering like a like a door with your credential or showing it to someone, it's a transaction. That part needs finality. So you've built your blockchain to have very fast, almost instant finality on that front. But then the auditing can kind of follow along on the normal block times, but that it's getting audited and hardened. Yeah, in fact, it's also a little bit different than that because the uh, actually the verification part. So uh, I have my credential already, and I go to the online liquor store and want to buy uh, online whiskey, then this thing is a direct communication between me as the holder of the credential and the liquor store. The blockchain is not really involved in the communication. The blockchain is involved at the point where the guy in the liquor store wants to verify if my credential is correct, really issued by the issuer that I say is issued, and that the issuer says this is a valid credential and I have not revoked that. This is what they check on the blockchain and they check this via an RPC call. And this goes in momentary, so 0.1 seconds or something, because it's just an RPC call. It's like, like checking uh, on either scan uh, how much you have on your account. It, it, the blockchain is not really involved. It's just checking on the blockchain if that's correct. What's put on the blockchain is a hash of the credential while the credential is issued. So if government or big company yeah. or comes and issues a credential to you, then you get the credential. And on the blockchain, they save the hash of the credential, which is necessary. They can't put the credential on because that might include personal data and you don't want personal data on the blockchain because blockchains can be read by anyone. So its credential is hashed by the issuer, put on the blockchain, said, this was me, this is a hash, and it is valid. And then... The credential is sent to you. You store the credential in your identity wallet. And every time you show it, then the the verifier, the guy who looks at the credential, checks back on the blockchain, okay, is this still valid? And does it really exist? This makes it so secure and very fast because you don't have to wait for another block time or whatever. You can just check if they are valid at any given RPC node in any given time. And then when you have like things like zero knowledge proofs, you'll be able to to just kind of attest to the to that as well. Yes. Very interesting. I remember when I met uh, Vitalik for the first time, and I actually know Gavin Wood, the creator of Polkadot, and he was on the founding team of Ethereum uh, as one of the founders of Ethereum wrote, I think he wrote the original implementation of yes. Ethereum. 
when when Vitalik mostly theorized it. I, I remember the days very, very vividly. But I remember like one of the conversations I had with Vitalik about smart contracts because I was going through my like, this was shit, this was like six, seven years ago. I was going through my like Bitcoin maximalist days. And and I'm so far from that now. I'm, I'm more of like a decentralization maximalist. I love all cryptos. In fact, the episode of the podcast that we released today is, uh, it's, it's you ready? Did you see the, ep- the, the name of the episode that I really, it's, it's Ish being ein Bitcoiner. <laughs> and uh, it's like being a Bitcoiner in the, in a crypto world. And how do you like kind of maintain those core values, but also embrace Web3 and all the really cool things that we're doing now without being a maximalist. There's a very clear way to do that. And a lot of people had struggled with that. So I'm really grateful to, to have some really cool guests. But I remember talking to Vitalik about this, back to my story. And uh, we're talking about Bitcoin and how Bitcoin, originally the idea was to potentially change Bitcoin and allow for things like Ethereum to be built on top of Bitcoin. And there were like colored coins back then and MasterCoin and some of these other things. The original like Omni Network where Tether launched on Omni before it actually launched. Tether launched on Bitcoin. Most people don't remember this before it actually launched on top of Ethereum. And it, there was a, and I, I'm not sure if, if uh, Tether on Omni has been like phased out by now. I'm not sure if any of them still exist, but there was a conversation about like building on the main layer or then build or having like multiple layers. And there was the Bitcoin conversation. There was the Ethereum conversation. And the Ethereum conversation was like, everything will be built onto and into Ethereum. And this was a very long time ago. And since other blockchains have launched, they've taken, and these ecosystems, you have like Polkadot, you have Polygon, you have Near. you have so many of these different like ecosystems, right? Do you think that maybe Vitalik had changed his kind of mind on how blockchain should be built out in the future. Because now if you look at how Ethereum is scaling, it's almost like embracing multiple layers and like, hey, don't build on the main chain, build on like a different layer. Yeah, it's uh, what I think, yeah, this this might turn out to be for so so many of the, the projects that you uh that, that you mentioned are basically solving some of the problems of Ethereum. So it was clear that in this competitive way where all the smart contracts um, compete for, for the block time, you actually run into things like latency, you run into things like it's full, it's expensive, yeah. and, blah, 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 and stuff like that. And there was uh, most of the projects you mentioned actually tried to solve this problem, right? They, they sort of solve the problem, like, okay, how can we make it faster? So we make a layer two on top of it, or we just take the decentralization out and it's much faster and stuff like that. So this is how the project solved that. But I think the big difference between those guys and uh, Gavin is that Gavin was the original producer of the code of Ethereum and he saw like not only this problem, he saw like 20 problems. He tried to, what developers always do, he said, okay, let's start from scratch, right? (laughs) Let's solve all the problems at once. And this is what Polkadot is. And this is a great difference. So he said, the, first of all, the principle of we are competing against each other is wrong. So let's collaborate. And this is what that. this model is, because the parachains can compete, they are not competing against each other, they can collaborate. Because when you, when you have the possibility to build those chains, then those chains become single purpose utility chains at one point. So we are not doing smart contracts. There's no smart contract on killed. There's just identity. We just can do DIDs and verifiable credentials. That's it. Nothing else. But then there's others 
like Moonbeam, for example, who do only basically Ethereum clone things like uh, smart contracts. And then there's others and others and others. And all that together actually produces the value. But then the people have to collaborate between each other, right? So it's it's a totally different concept. We're not competing, we're collaborating. Uh, so th that was the first thing. And then there's 10,000 technical things which also have been improved. And if, if you just make another version of, of Ethereum, which is faster, yeah. then solving only one of the problems, actually. And uh, this is what we saw with many of the other projects. And I think especially those who had the great idea to take the decentralization out, because it makes it faster, of course, if you don't have all those validators, then uh, you can just you know, produce the truth, whatever the truth is, on your computer, on your desktop in zero time. And I think uh, talking about decentralization, this doesn't really have future because that you can do with a database and then you don't need a blockchain. So my, my take is if you do centralized things, then you can you shouldn't use a blockchain because a blockchain makes everything so yeah. complicated. Let me ask you a question. I remember going back the first time I ever heard, not the first time, but one of the earliest real implementations I, I heard of someone trying to do decentralized identity was this company here in Florida that was called a clear voter, voter like you're voting. And I realized, like everyone realized very quickly that doing like decentralized identity and credentials is probably one of the most obvious killer apps, killer use cases, right, for, for this, for crypto. So what, I mean, like, why has it been so hard? Like, what's been the biggest obstacle yeah. for entrepreneurs like tackling this? I know the answer to that, because we also saw that Uport is something that you should also mention, right? So Uport is a fantastic company and they, yeah. they did basically everything right at their time, but they were just too early. The, the problem with identity is if you don't agree first industry-wide how the identity looks like, then everyone's building their own shit and it's not relevant because you are not going to convince the whole world to use this identity schema just because you had a great idea. So what, what actually in 2016 or 2017, I'm not sure, I think 2017, was that industry came together, blockchain industry, but also the old industries, so IBM, uh, Microsoft, many companies like us, and so on, came together in the Decentralized Identity Foundation. More than 300 companies were there, I think 320. And we sat together and uh, we said, okay, we understand this problem, but we can solve this problem only by standardizing how identity actually looks like, what it, how it is represented. And uh, let's build those standards and then find an international, very much recognized standardization body, which actually puts the stamp on and says, okay, this is now the industry standard. And uh, this is work that was no fun at all, because getting 300 different companies with their researchers together and actually agreeing on something wasn't easy. So it took five years to, to build this. And then we had to find a standardization body. So we chose the W3C, which is also, which is the guys who also brought you things like HTTP and HTML. So they're pretty much recognized in the internet world and asked them to standardize that for us or to make it a recommendation. This is how their standards are called. And uh, then, of course, in the W3C, you find companies like Facebook, Google, who are not really excited about decentralized identities for some reason. Um, and uh, one of them was even, even trying to slow the process down a little bit. Yeah, so it really took five years to get those the stamp and make the standardization. But it all happened in 2022. So 2022 wasn't all bad. So it happened this year. So the official stamp is there. We now have an international industry standard for how decentralized identities actually look like. And now everyone can safely build on, the, on top of this. 
And this is what was necessary. This is why the early guys, even though they were fantastic, like Uport, they failed because there was no standard. Did you see that WorldCoin orb? The what? WorldCoin orb? No. I can't. I, I just, you maybe, there's this, I'll put it in the chat here. There was this thing that launched like, I think a year ago, that was that was called WorldCoin.org. And it was supposed to be this orb that pe- that they're going to be putting all over the world in different cities. And essentially, you can walk up to the orb and like verify your identity in a decentralized way. Yeah. But it made it look like it was like robots or aliens invading, like putting these orbs all over and you had people were lining up to like, and then who owns all, it was all like VC backed. So people were saying all the VCs were owning this data and it was just this whole, I think it didn't get a lot of. The idea that it was more uh, very much sent, uh, looking at the identifier. So they were not looking for identity. And this is what people always mix up. So it's identity and identifier are different things. Identifier is just to identify someone. Great. But this is not identity. If you talk about digital identity, it's much more because you are not just your face. You are, you have a history, right? So your history is basically part of your identity. You have, you can, you have studied somewhere and so on. And then you can prove that with credentials. And when you think it without the credentials, it's, it's totally nice, but not complete. And so it was basically necessary to, to build both things, verifiable credentials and DIDs together to actually make a difference. And so I think this is really going to make a difference. We see that because we talk a lot with industry partners and everyone seems to be very much interested in actually jumping on that because it is like now we have the standard. It's, it's like when you have a standard for phone numbers, then you can basically build a phone network all over the world because I know I can reach you starting with 001 because that's America and then I find you somewhere. So if you have the standard, then it's possible to make international networks. And this is what industry and research are recognizing right now. Of course, it's going to take a while. Will the standards be agnostic or are they just on a network that's built on Polkadot? Totally agnostic. So uh, a Kilt DID has, it looks like that. It has DID, colon, Kilt, colon, and then some string. Okay. Um, and this is compatible with anything that is issued by Microsoft because they have uh, DID, colon, Microsoft, colon, and then... Oh, that's so cool. Then there's a uh, universal resolver, which resolves every type of DID to every other type of DID. So it's uh, this is the idea. As you said, it's completely agnostic of the underlying system. And even the blockchain-issued DIDs are compatible with centralized-issued DIDs. So it's also, it's, it's totally open. Shit. This is this is some amazing, amazing, amazing work you guys are doing. Thank you for taking the time and, and coming on the show today and giving us a little bit of an insight. I really appreciate it. And happy Friday again. Happy Monday. Happy Tuesday. Thank you very much. Thanks for the <laughs> I'll talk to you later. Thanks. Bye.